1 Samuel chapter 30, the title of the message is this, When Life is Overwhelming. One of the all-time great children's books is Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. How many have read it? Raise your hand. All right. In the book, an eight-year-old tells us how, this, how his day has been. As you can imagine from the title, it was horrible. I want to read some of it. Can I do that? He says, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I get out of bed this morning, or got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard. And by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running. And I could just tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box. And Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Miss Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be car sick. But no one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And so Alexander's day went misfortunes, disappointments, scoldings. And it ended like it began. There were lima beans for dinner and I hate limas. There was kissing on TV and I hate kissing. (laughs) My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My only marble went down the drain and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow. He said I could keep forever. And the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out. Then I bit my tongue. Now the cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me. It's been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. He ends by saying, my mom says some days are just like that. It's not only eight-year-olds that have bad days. Their parents have bad days too. And sometimes it's not just a bad day, let's be honest. It's an overwhelmingly bad season of life. When I say overwhelming, I don't, I said a little bit this morning, gave you a preview. I don't mean just a bad day. Everybody has a bad day. I mean a series of bad days. It's not just that you're down with the flu. That's part of life in 2021, 22. It's chronic health problems. It's not just a strained marriage. It's a broken marriage. It's not just a teenager going through a phase. It's an outright rebellious, unmanageable, manipulating teenager. It's not just a hard day at work. Everybody has those. It's just a miserable job altogether. To be overwhelmed is not just that something unfortunate happened because that's part of life. It's that it keeps happening over and over and over. One thing after another, I can think back just growing up different seasons of life that, that I noticed my dad was, was kind of just overwhelmed. As a preacher's kid, I would notice those things. I could mention a lot, but, but there, there was a season of, it seemed like tragedy in our church in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Just several of our church members just, it felt like all at once we had funeral after funeral after funeral. My Aunt Ginger passed away, went to heaven. And then uh, Fred Kittle 
was, was tragically killed in an airplane crash. I can remember in, in, in our little minivan Chevy Astro, we were on our way to Wichita, Kansas when we got that phone call. I'll never forget that for some reason, Mishula, never forget that. My dad, as soon as he hung up, just started bawling his eyes out. So was just heartbroken. Uh, I, I, can, I can remember uh, Jim Potts' wife at that time. He woke up and she was dead right next to him. You remember that church if you were, if you were here then? And I remember as a little boy just, just watching my dad just funeral after funeral. Not of people that, that, that were like fringe people, but people that were in the trenches of ministry here. Influential. Love the Lord. And my dad just was overwhelmed. You can fast forward to when we built this building. My dad always jokes around. Now he understands why Noah got drunk after he built the ark. <laughs> my, my dad uh, got overwhelmed at, at, at the earlier stage of purchasing this building whenever uh, Cord Weatherly was on top of a ladder doing electrical work and, and got shocked and had to kick the ladder out from under him to save his life and, and went down on his back and just wrecked his back. Couldn't work for, I don't know, Brother John, over a year or more. Major surgery. Not too long after that is when Brother Frank passed away. The wind blew him off the, the roof. My dad was so overwhelmed, you remember, he just locked the doors. He said, we're done with that. That's what I'm talking about when you're overwhelmed. You see, it's, it's not a bad day. If you think a bad day is overwhelming, then frankly, you need to get a little more maturity than Alexander. Because we're talking about Trial on top of trial. We're talking about chronic disappointment. I was at college at Heartland Baptist Bible College and I went to a church, Southwest Baptist Church there. Brother Sam Davison was the, was the president of the college, the pastor of the church at the time. My uh, number one mentor at the college and definitely in the area of church music was a, a man by the name of Floyd Schecksneider who was in charge of the music department at Heartland, the minister of music at Southwest. And, I'll never forget we got the phone call that he was working in his front yard and he just fell over dead. Massive heart attack. The guy weighed like 150 pounds. Just a couple months after that, their facilities manager was changing a light in a ceiling. Brother, you would say it's higher than this, wouldn't you? Changing a light when he, he fell through the ceiling and landed smack dab on the floor in front of the pulpit and he's dead. A couple other things happened in the church at that time. And I just watched as that pastor was just overwhelmed. And that church was just overwhelmed. I, I remember 2015 when we admitted Jenny in the Castle Rock Hospital. And she had all those surgeries and three trips to the ICU. And times when we thought that, man, this could be very, very serious. And, and then the doctor came in and, and we thought, maybe you're going to go home. No, you've got an infection. And we just begging God to let this fever break so we could go home and it just never broke over 40 days of fighting these infections and, and multiple procedures and, and it just it, it, that, I felt like Alexander <laughs> one bad report after another I can't imagine how my wife felt see overwhelming seasons are just simply a part of life they're going to come church 
They're going to happen. And when they do, they inevitably will leave us thinking, sometimes out loud, where did this come from? When is it going to stop? God, what are you doing? Maybe most important, what am I supposed to do? How do I survive this season of my life when I feel so overwhelmed? Well, our text tonight helps answer that question because we find David in an overwhelming season of life. A time when tragedy piled on tragedy, loss piled upon loss, heartache and stress piled upon heartache and stress. Look at the first six verses of chapter 30. It came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag. Remember, Ziklag is a little village that, that, that King David, well, he's not a king yet, but future King David was given. It's like a, supposed to be a safe place out in the middle of nowhere. Well, the Amalekites found it. They burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were there. And they slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. So David and his men, if you remember, had been assaulting the Amalekites for the past 16 months. Now the Amalekites were seeking revenge. So just like David did to them, they burned what had become David's base of operations in Ziklag. All their hard-earned and fought-for possessions were smoldering. They were ashes. But the hurt is multiplied when, when, when David and every man with him realized their wives and their children had been kidnapped. Have you ever thought that, parents, that crazy, crazy, scary thought? What if my kids ever get kidnapped? I've thought that. Maybe I'm twisted. I don't know. But I, I sometimes get those Amber Alerts on my phone. And, and every time I get one of those, it's a little bit, it's a little bit sometimes embarrassing because I'm in the middle of somewhere where your phone shouldn't go off, but it does. Sometimes it's frustrating because I get interrupted. But every time without fail, I think that could be Kevin. When your kids get taken, that is a major deal. <laughs> David's men are so hurt and so overwhelmed that it says they cry until they can't cry anymore. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been grieving? You lost somebody you loved. You're going through something so deep that literally you cry every tear that's in your body. And you don't get numb. It's just like you just can't hardly cry anymore. I, I, I've been there myself. But it gets even more overwhelming for David because his men's grief turns into anger. They need someone to blame. Hurt people hurt people. And David seems like the logical choice. So, so they started talking about stoning him. Now, before you glance over that, think about how this might have affected David. These are the men that ran to him when he was in the cave of Dulam. They were in debt, they were distressed, and they were scared of King Saul. But yet David took them in. David trained them. David turned them into mighty men of war. Now they want David dead. One of the, one of the worst forms of betrayal is when you've invested into somebody's life and they turn their back on you. Here's David. His possessions are gone. His city is burnt to the ground. 
He's lost his wives and now he's lost the trust of his men that he has invested in. And Ziklag, watch church, wasn't an isolated event. David has been getting pounded on since chapter 18. And now it's almost more than he can take. And so it is with our lives. There are times that we conclude that our present trouble is the last straw. We can't take anymore. Then comes Ziklag. The last straw after the last straw. Delral Davis said this. Sometimes you're tempted to add a line to Psalms 30 verse 5. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Then disaster strikes the next afternoon. That's Ziklag. When this happens, what are we supposed to do? That's the question of the text. The question of the text is not, will we be overwhelmed? The question of the text is, when we are, what do we do? David's response teaches us. Look at the end of verse 6. After all of that, David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. He encouraged himself in the Lord his God. God, this is key to understanding the text. If, if David encouraged himself in the Lord when he was overwhelmed, then we have to ask what that means. Well, let's talk about what it doesn't mean first. Encouraging yourself in the Lord like David did is not a quick fix. Did you hear me? It's not some kind of gospel magic. God is not some spiritual pain reliever that we take in times of trouble. He's not an insurance plan that we lean on in case of emergency. That's not what David's doing here. Encouraging yourself in the Lord also is not merely venting or letting everything out to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. In our series, Praying Through, we talked about Psalms of Lament. That's very appropriate and a very, very key part of your spiritual growth and processing grief and being honest with God. But you don't encourage yourself in the Lord by merely pouring out everything to him. David's men already did that. They cried into the point of exhaustion, but they weren't encouraged in the Lord. So that's not what David is doing here. Encouraging yourself in the Lord involves more than mere grief or honesty before God. We're given an indication in the next two verses what it means. Verse 7. And David said to Abathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue. For thou shalt surely overtake them and without fail recover all. David's encouraging himself in the Lord, watch here, was not a passive activity. It wasn't just something God did for him. It was something that David sought in God. His God, he sought out the priest. He sought out the priest ephod. The, the priest was the representative of God, the go-between for David to access God. The ephod was that, uh, what the priest would use to access the guidance of God. Here's what David did. When he was overwhelmed, he strengthened himself by accessing God's presence. That's the first thing we do when life overwhelms us. It should be the default response. The immediate thing we do is we seek God's presence. We may not have Abathar. We, we may not have the ephod, yet the same resource is accessible to us as it was David. 
I should say it this way. A greater resource is accessible to us. We have a greater high priest. Greater than Abathar. I've read this verse a ton. It just keeps coming up. God must want to drive it home in our church. Hebrews 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. That is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Abathar. But was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. That's Jesus. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All God's people said. We may not get precise answers all the time like David did. But we will always get grace to help when we seek God's presence. And I have found that when life is overwhelming, I usually, I usually need grace more immediately than I need answers. Now, I know that's counterintuitive to most of us because we often think this, how, how nice it would have been for us to have what David had. You can just go knock on the pastor's door. You can tell the pastor, hey, go get the ephod, would you real quick? I need an answer from God. I'm going through an overwhelming season of life. I need to know what I need to do right now. God, give me details. Give me guidance. Tell me why. But when you think about it, when life is overwhelming, the first thing we need most immediately is not answers. We need strength and grace to help get us through the next day. Most immediately, we don't need information. We need endurance. We don't need turn-by-turn turn directions. We need encouragement to just take the next step. We don't need to know something new. We just need to stay on our feet. Of course we're going to need God's answers and God's guidance and directives along the way. And we have God's word for that. But immediately what we need when life is overwhelming is the grace we receive in God's presence. Think about it. When the Apostle Paul was writing about his thorn in the flesh, the thorn he asked God to remove three different times, the thorn that caused him pain, the thorn that overwhelmed him, he eventually came to the conclusion that he could go on with a positive spirit and with hope, not because God's answers were sufficient. It's not what he said. Not because God's directives were efficient. That's not what he said. He said because God's grace is sufficient. The grace you find in God's presence. Go to the book of James chapter 4. And he talks about how God gives more grace. Are you with me? He says, but he giveth more grace to who? The humble. He resists the proud, but he gives more grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves and seek God's presence, when we're overwhelmed. Listen, church, God doesn't promise to give you more answers. That's not what he says. He doesn't promise to give you more details. He, he, he doesn't promise to give you anything other than grace. Why? That's what you need. When David wrote Psalms 23, he didn't say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for I have all the answers. I have all the details. I will fear no evil, for I have all the wisdom I need. No, no, he didn't fear evil. Why? Because God was with him. He had God's presence, which is what he needed most immediately to walk through the valley. And that's why we use our priest. That's why we bow before our Abathar, because Jesus immediately gives us what we need to face life's most overwhelming trials. 
I know it, it sounds like preacher speak, like it sounds so intangible, so vague. You need God's presence. Go pray. And you'll have God's grace. And, and as humans, here's what we want. We want to know what does that grace look like? What does it feel like? How do I know when I have it? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. The best way to describe it is this. The best way to describe God's grace is this. You will have all you need when you need it. He might not give you more than you need that day. And he certainly won't give you less than you need. If you're going to a doctor's appointment that makes you nervous, you'll have what you need. If you're going to undergo a procedure that makes you nervous, you'll have what you need. Brother Bryce has parents in Nashville right now that, that well, they're actually in Vanderbilt Hospital. They were just here sitting on the front row last Sunday morning worshiping with us. On their way home on I-40 rear-ended a semi. And now his aging parents, his dad's already had a stroke, battles with, with, with some mental illness and other things that come along with that stroke. His mother has been his dad's primary caregiver for all this time. And now his primary caregiver doesn't even know if she'll walk again. Major reconstructive surgery on her leg. Some spinal injuries. It, it, it just... It's amazing when a preacher says, God will give you grace. It's like, yeah. Can I get more than that? No, I can't give you more than that. Why? You don't need more than that. You got to trust that when Paul said God's grace is sufficient, he meant it. God's grace is in that hospital room, Brother Bryce. It's almost like an invisible IV drop. Flowing into your mama's veins and flowing into your dad's veins. It's a drip of grace that is intangible. It's a drip of grace, uh, that, a drip of grace that, that is invisible. But it is so very present. The grace of God right now is invisibly flowing through the IV for Don Witzke. On, bed, on a hospital bed, had a major stroke. Doesn't know if he'll ever get off that bed the same. Don't know if he'll ever return to being able to use that side of his body. Doesn't even know if he'll live through the week. But he will have all he needs when he needs it. And so will Rachel Jordan and Matt and April. When we're, we bury their only surviving parent. And now they have no dad no living mom, no grandpa, no grandma for their kids. You say, how, how do they get through something so tragic? All I can say is you get in God's presence. And on Saturday, they will have all they need when they need it. Donna, your next immunotherapy treatment. You will have all you need when you need it. Jenny, on Tuesday, when you drive to Garden City, and you have that, that treatment that you do every six weeks that knocks you out for five days. You have all you need when you need it. Employee, when you got to face your boss again tomorrow, you'll have all you need when you need it. Wife, husband, when you can't get along with your wife or your husband and you don't know if this thing is going to work, you will have all you need when you need it. Church member, when you just cannot get over an offense and you can't forgive, guess what? God's grace is there. You'll have all you need when you need it. Teenagers, when your parents are driving you crazy, 
and you can't seem to get along with them, you will have all you need when you need it. How do you get it? You go to the throne room of God. It doesn't fall out of the sky. You access it. You go to the throne of grace boldly, believing that Jesus will give you what you need. Boy, that's good. After David encouraged himself in the Lord by seeking the presence of the Lord, he and his men began to travel toward where the Amalekites were located. About 12 to 15 miles into their trip, they encountered a random Egyptian man. Look at verses 9 through 15. So David went, he and the 600 men that were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those that were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 abode behind, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Besor. And they found an Egyptian in the field. They brought him to David and gave him bread, and he did eat, and they made him drink water. They gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And, and when he had eaten, his spirit came again to him, for he had eaten no bread, nor drunk any water three days and three nights. And David said unto him, To whom belongest thou? And whence art thou? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me because three days ago I fell sick. And then he told David what they did. We made an invasion upon the south of the Cherethites and upon the coast which belongeth to Judah and upon the south of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, canst thou bring me down to this company? And he said, swear unto me. He tried to make a deal. Swear unto me by God that thou will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master. And I will bring thee down to this company. Get this, get this, get this. David has 600 men traveling with him. They get to this brook. There are 200 men that are too tired to go on. So he takes the 400 men the rest of their way. On their way, they happen to walk beside an Egyptian man that is lying sick in the field. How many walked through a field before? Hunting birds? doing whatever you do in a field. I don't know. I don't hang out in fields. How many, Brother Clinton, you know what's up. F fields aren't small. All right. If you're going to walk beside, just happen beside someone in a field, it's usually not an accident. See, apparently this Egyptian guy had been working for the Amalekites. Then he got sick and a sick Egyptian does them no good. So they left him for dead. Question, do you think this is just an accident? That a random Egyptian guy that was employed by the very people David was after was laying sick in the field that David just happened to be traveling. I say no. This was God's doing. There weren't satellites in space at this time for David to get an aerial footage of the Amalekites location. There weren't advanced intelligence forces that David could send out around the Middle East to track down the Amalekites. The only hope of David finding his children and their wives and their spoils was for God to lead them. To God to give them a clue. And God did through this random Egyptian guy of all people. So David fed him a meal. You know, you, you can't really get much out of a hungry man. All women said... If you need to have a good talk with your husband, you better feed him first. That's the marriage lesson from 1 Samuel 30. And then David interrogated him. And upon being promised immunity, the Egyptian guy gave David the Amalekites location. Now David and his men could relocate their wives and children. What does this mean for us in our overwhelming seasons of life? We don't just seek God's presence. Here's, here, here's what else we do. We look for God's provision. 
There are no theological bells and whistles going off in chapter 30 announcing God's providence. As far as I could tell, there's nothing that came out of there that said, this is God's provision. We're expected with the Holy Spirit's help to see it ourselves. Because God's providence rarely works in loud and obvious ways. It doesn't always announce its presence. It's a quiet work that we have to be looking for. It happens in the mundane rhythms of our life. I have found that it's often the little things that God uses to provide for us. Like just one sick Egyptian servant laying in the middle of a field. To quote Mr. Davis again, little provisions, he says, make big differences. That's true all throughout scripture. Think about it. It was a a little ram caught in the thickets that made a big difference for Abraham and Isaac. It was a little bush in the middle of a desert that made a big difference for Moses. It was a few little jars that made a big difference for a desperate widow that needed to pay off her debts or lose her kids. It was a little boy's lunch that made a huge difference for a hungry crowd on the hillside. It was a little rock that made a big difference for a shepherd boy facing a giant. Hey, God often uses little things to make big differences in our life during overwhelming times. But we have to be looking for them. It's not like us sometimes to see the hand of God when we're overwhelmed. We don't even want to see the hand of God sometimes when we're overwhelmed. We don't want to hear the name of God. We don't want to even connect God to this trial whatsoever in our selfishness. We want to to resort to self-pity and victimization. And I tell you that in the overwhelming seasons of life, you have to push back from that kind of reaction and you have to open your eyes and say, God, show me the ram in the thickets. Show me the Egyptian man laying in the field. Show me the the rock in the brook that I need. Sometimes God's provision will come through the right person at the right time with just the right words. I call it encouragement. Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue. You understand that the right word at the right time from the right person can give you a lot of life. And so, so it is. That's how God sends his provision sometimes. It's, it's little tiny ways. Like if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 23, David had just been betrayed by people that, that, that he just totally risked his life for. And what did God do to provide what he needed at that time to give him the grace that he needed? What did God do? He sent his best friend to him. He sent Jonathan to him and Jonathan spoke into his life and gave him hope that God's going to take good care of you. David, you have no idea what your encouragement might do for somebody that's wrestling with an overwhelming season of life. One text message, one handwritten postcard, one letter, one Facebook comment, one word of greeting at God's house. One testimony in connection group. You have no idea. If you are the person that is hurting right now, open your eyes. God has a Jonathan for you. Don't resist encouragement. And that is the very thing God has given you to make it through another day. It's it's not just little provisions by way of the right word at the right time by the right people. But I found that, that oftentimes God's provision 
will come through godly counsel. Life has a way of placing us, does it not, at a crossroads where we don't know what to do or where to go. That's when God will oftentimes provide counsel, maybe through a sermon preached at church or a verse you read in your devotion. I'm talking about little things in the mundane rhythms of life, a, a song being sung, what seems to be a random conversation with a godly friend, an arranged counseling session with a pastor or staff member, through a good Christian book. You, you might find yourself at a crossroads of life and you're looking for God's guidance through these normal everyday occurrences and God through what seems like a random Egyptian man laying in the field gives you just what you need. When you think about the word provision, you can separate the word into two parts, pro and vision. Vision has to do with seeing something. The prefix pro means beforehand or in advance. Put them together and you understand provision to be something God sees beforehand. Something that God knows you'll need before you know you need it. And because he can see what you need in advance, he works to provide for you at just the right time. That's why we call him Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Next time you're tempted to look to heaven and say, God, where are you? Remind yourself that he is currently providing for you. He is seeing farther down the road than you can. And he is working out, pulling the strings causing the Egyptian people in your life to have a sick stomach and lay in the field so that you can pass by and you'll have what you need to get through the next day. After David received the Amalekites' location from the Egyptian man, he and his men headed that way. The narrator then goes on to explain, and we won't read it, but David and his 400 mighty men sneak up on the Amalekites. They were partying from having success in Ziklag. That's when David and, and his men attacked them, recovered their wives and children and a lot of possessions. The Amalekites had stolen, not just from Ziklag, but from a bunch of other places that they, they invaded. It really was a great victory that, that wouldn't have been possible without the provision of the Lord. But, but then the narrator uses the next few verses, and this is where we'll come to a close tonight. Because the next few verses of the text explain what David did after the victory. I think it's what we ought to do at the tail end of the overwhelming seasons of our life. Look at verses 21 through 25. And David came to the 200 men, which were so faint that they could not follow David, whom they had made also to abide at the brook Besor. And they went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with him. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them. Then answered all the wicked men and men of Belial, of those that went with David. These are the 400 men. Here's what they said. Because they went not with us, we will not give them aught of the spoil that we have recovered, save to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Then said David, watch here, ye shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord hath given to us, who hath preserved us and delivered the company that came against us into our hand. For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part alike. And it was so from that day forward that he made it a statue and an ordinance for Israel unto this day. What's going on here? After the war, David met up with the 200 men that he was forced to leave behind because they were too weary to travel. You remember that? David's intention was to split up the spoils of the war, not with just the 400 men that fought, but with all 600. That's what he thought the right thing was to do. When he suggested that, the 400 men who fought went crazy. 
The narrator described them as having a wicked and devilish spirit called the men of Belial. They threw a fit at the thought of these 200 men getting anything outside of their wives and children. Here was their mindset. They didn't fight. They don't get fed. David shows his courageous leadership when he stands up to them and he tells them that the spoils will be divided evenly among everyone, including the 200 men that didn't fight. Here's my question. Why did David do that? I mean, the 400 men kind of have a point, do they not? So what was David's rationale here? How does it apply to us surviving and thriving through our overwhelming seasons of life? Well, verse 23 tells us his rationale. David recognized that nobody, including him and the 400 men who fought, deserved anything. Because nobody can really get the credit for anything. David said this, the Lord hath given it to us, verse 23. The Lord hath preserved us. The Lord hath delivered us. Watch here, church. Don't, don't check out on me. David's theology informed his practice. He had a grip on God's grace in his life, even during overwhelming times. And because he recognized and appreciated God's grace, he was willing to share it with others who probably, frankly, didn't deserve it. Here's the point. When life overwhelms you for whatever reason, you seek God's presence then you look for God's provision. Then lastly, you appreciate God's grace. Everything in your life has been given to you by the Lord. Not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, not because you've had it coming to you. You have what you have because of God's good grace in your life. You have salvation. Why? Because of God's grace. You have health to get out of your bed and come to church tonight. Why? Because of God's grace. I'm hoping I get a little more feedback on this. A little more agreement. You have a church to go to tonight because of God's grace. You live in a free country because of God's grace. You have a roof over your head and you have shoes on your feet and you have a food, food on your table because of God's grace. You have children because of God's grace. You have grandchildren because of God's grace. You have a spouse because of God's grace. You have friends because of God's grace. You have talent because of God's grace. You have money because of God's grace. You have a job because of God's grace. You have a car because of God's grace. And I could go on all night. You have more than you can ever imagine. And it's all because of God's good grace. Why is that important to realize during overwhelming times? Here's why. Because when life is overwhelming us, we tend to turn inward really fast. We tend to get pessimistic really fast. We tend to sulk in self-pity really fast when we should be recognizing and appreciating God's good grace in our lives, even though life stinks. Because just because life is hard doesn't mean God's grace has ceased. God's grace never stops giving to you and working in your life. Whether you realize it or not, it never stops. I think through the Bible, if anybody had a reason to pout and complain and doubt God's goodness, it would have been the man, a man by the name of Job. Who in a matter of moments had everything taken away from him. But what do we find Job doing in those moments? We find Job worshiping God and appreciating God's grace in his life. The Bible says, then Job arose. 
and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground. He wasn't superhuman. Those are all acts of deep grief. But then he worshiped. And he said, because worship is always based on truth. Naked came out, came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave. I said, the Lord gave. And the Lord had taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Church, Job never stopped appreciating God's grace. He recognized every good thing in his life was given to him by God, even when life overwhelmed him. Do you get it? He lost his farm. He lost his possessions. He lost his family. He lost his wife. He, he, he lost his livestock. He, he, he lost his health. His friends weren't making a bit of sense. But at the end of the day, here's what he didn't lose. God and God's grace. And that was David's approach to this very overwhelming time in his life. His men turned inward and they got greedy. David looked upward and he became generous. And by the way, that's the evidence of a Christian who has recognized and appreciated God's grace in their life. They are generous in sharing God's grace with others. When you truly appreciate God's grace, you generously share God's grace. When you understood what David understood, the Lord has given this to me, then you will gladly give it to others. Think about it. Is that not why the apostle Paul told us in Ephesians 4.32 to be kind to one another? Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You should be generous with grace to others in forgiveness because God has been overly generous to you and forgiving you. Your comprehension, watch here, your comprehension of God's good grace in your life directly affects your capacity to show good grace and forgiveness to other people. If you are struggling to forgive tonight, it's because you are struggling to appreciate God's grace in your life. You cannot appreciate God's grace in your life and be bitter at the same time. It doesn't just apply to bitterness. Go to the earlier part of the book of Ephesians. Paul felt obligated to share the grace of the gospel with others. Why? Because it was shared with him. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs in the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Next verse, I think. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable, I'm sorry for missing the S, riches of Christ. Do you get the verse? Paul says, God's good grace found me where I was. He was a Christian murderer. He imprisoned Christians and preachers and missionaries and converts. And he was on his way to do it again when God's grace met him. And it changed him. And then God's grace called him to share the gospel with others. And he says, the reason why I feel so obligated to share God's grace and the good news of the gospel is because God changed my life. If you're struggling to have a burden to reach souls, if you're struggling to share your faith with others, if you're struggling to even invite somebody to church for crying out loud, here is the direct, here is the direct uh, uh, reason for why you're struggling with that. Because you have lost sight that at one time you were lost. And at one time you were blind. 
And at one time you, you were going to hell, but God's good grace met you right where you are and somebody shared the gospel with you. And if you're struggling to share the gospel with others, if you're not generous with the, with the gospel with others, it's frankly because you have forgotten that God's been so generous to you. We cannot have a church. We cannot have a church full of members that have lost sight of the fact that they were once lost, but now they're found. The moment we have a church that starts taking God's good grace for granted, and that he, he met you right where you are and saved you right where you are. The moment our members and the moment this pastor forgets that is the moment we die. But it's not just the gospel. It has to do with your giving. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, or 2 Corinthians 8. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed it on these churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. This is where, where liberal love originated right here. Why were they willing to give liberally and generously, even though they were experiencing deep poverty and they were able to do it joy? Why? Because of that first phrase, the grace of God. If you're struggling to give a tithe or you're struggling to give to missions or you're struggling to be obedient and being a generous giver to the local church, it's because you have lost sight of how generous God has been to you. If we get greedy, it's because we have stopped appreciating God's good grace. The best and most generous and most consistent givers in this church are not people that have their act together. It's not people that are rich. It's people that are humbled by the grace of God in their lives and still haven't gotten over it. You would think that David at this point would be hard pressed to let go of anything. Please hear me. Please, please stay with me. He just lost everything. His men were just threatening to stone him. He's not going to trust anybody. You would think that he had every right to live life like this. He's overwhelmed. He's lost it all. He finally got his wives back. And you would think he's just going to huddle them up and say, you 600 lunatics stay here. We're going and we're just going to go find us a new Ziklag. I'm not giving and leading anybody. But he didn't. Even when he was overwhelmed on the tail end of all of that, he lived just like this. When everybody else tried to tell him don't. Why is that important? Because people, when they're overwhelmed, usually get selfish. Selfish with their grace, selfish with their money, selfish with their time, selfish with their energy, selfish with their investments, selfish with their forgiveness. You would do well. The best way to get through an overwhelming season of life is to appreciate God's grace and share it with others. My goodness. I wonder tonight if, if somebody in here is experiencing a terrible, no good, horrible, very bad season of life. I wonder if something overwhelms you. I wonder if there's anybody here that already at the start of 2022, you're discouraged. And you're afflicted and you're down. We don't need to talk about why. We don't need to just major on what's going on in your life. It's real to you. And it's real to God. But you understand you were here on purpose to hear this message. I didn't make this up. This is where we are in the book of 1 Samuel. 
I did not hit the fast forward button. I didn't skip chapters and verses. This is where we are. Here, here's what that means. God had a word for this group tonight from this passage. It's on purpose. That's his providence. So look for it. Was this message for you? Do you want to survive and thrive through the overwhelming seasons of 2022? Here's what you do. Seek God's presence. Look for God's provision. And appreciate God's grace. That's how you encourage yourself in the Lord. When life stinks. That's how we do it. It's not just passive. It's an active process. We work through it with the Lord. And I hope that you'll do that this week, this month. This year, this moment in your life. Please, please, please hear and do the word of God tonight. It could save you so much heartache. Father, we love you.